Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. We have a really fun one for you today. It's quick. We're doing one deal, kind of quick in and out. And uh, this is a business that we really didn't love very much, but I do think we have fascinating conversation about it. It's a wholesaler and distributor of premium flooring products in Texas. I'll give you three guesses about which one of us sent this in, and you can listen to the episode to find out more. But uh, it, we, we key in on some interesting points about this type of business, where it sits in the value chain, uh, where margins are for distributors, and how you think about a transaction like this if you're into this kind of thing. Hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, Michael here. Want to talk to you about today's sponsor for the episode, uh, which is cloudbookkeeping.com. So cloudbookkeeping is actually run by my neighbor, Charlie. So I've met him in person and uh, can attest that he's a real human being and a good person. Uh, And what cloudbookkeeping does is offer a full suite of bookkeeping services uh, all in the cloud uh, for you around QuickBooks and other technologies that you're using as a small business owner. Uh, So if you're interested in getting the bookkeeping part of running a business off of your plate and focusing on running your business, uh, Charlie and his team are one to call. Um, They can put together a bunch of other stuff in terms of helping you manage and grow your business besides just bookkeeping, Um, sophisticated reporting, uh, definitely helping you get your QuickBooks online set up in the right way, uh, and a number of things around payroll as well. So uh, definitely know them and recommend them if you want want to find out more about cloud bookkeeping, um, you can go to their website at cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, reach out to Charlie. I know many of you have uh, and see if he can help you uh, make your running your business easier and more fun by uh, letting them help with a lot of the bookkeeping solutions. So, uh, And when you call, mention this podcast. Uh, it would help us uh, and help Charlie know uh, that we're supporting him as well. So thanks a bunch and cloudbookkeeping.com as the sponsor for today's episode. Guys, welcome back. Another fun, quick episode. We have one deal to discuss today and Michael's got our deal. Michael, let's dive right in. All right. So this is actually a real deal from a real listener who may or may not be my buddy. (laughs) So um, he sent it to me. He's like, hey, check this one out currently. And I was like, well, yeah, let's check it out. Um, so the, uh, it's one page teaser that we have. We pulled it up if you're on, on YouTube, uh, and it is titled a wholesaler of premium flooring products. Uh, it has a 2022 estimated revenue of $14 million and three and a half million dollars in EBITDA. And it is located, guess where bill, not North Carolina, Texas, of course. Um, so they have a picture here of a uh, guy putting down flooring. So it looks like laminate style stuff, the stuff that's in your kitchen and bath. Um, and basically 2021, they sold hardwood, luxury vinyl, trim and accessories uh, over uh, over that year. 84% of their revenue was from hardwood flooring. So that, like the hardwood flooring that you put down over concrete to make it look like you have a wood floor. Um So the company is a rapidly growing wholesaler of premium hardwood flooring and luxury vinyl planks operating in a major urban market. So that basically means it's either Dallas or Houston. Uh, Using a well-curated network of key suppliers, the company designs and imports its own products, offering several unique collections with strong brand recognition in its key markets in multiple states. The company sees opportunities for continued growth, both through acquisitions and geographical expansion, and management is interested and willing to remain with the company post-transaction to facilitate orderly transactions or transitions. It is an S-Corp. 
So that means uh, it, it is founder owned and taxed as a partnership, it has seven full-time employees, claims to have deep management and a bench of people uh, to help run the business, a 34,000 square foot leased facility uh, and a number of growth opportunities. In 2019, they did 6 million in revenue. 2020, they did 8 million in revenue. 2021, they did nearly 12 million in revenue. And their estimate for 2022 is 14 million in revenue. So they've been growing pretty quickly. It looks like 20%-ish per year. And then they've been operating. So the year that they did 6 million in revenue, they did 800K in profit. And then the $8.1 million year, they did 1.6 million in profit. And then the $11 million year, they did 2.8 million in profit. So Help me with my math, Bill. That looks like they're running about 20%, 20% margin. A little better, a little better. 20, I mean, 10% on 14 million would be 1.4 and they did 3.5. So that's, you know, that's 25% roughly. So interesting. They- I call BS <laughs> on the margins. <laughs> if they're a wholesaler of flooring products, those, those aren't sustainable yeah. margins. There's something wrong. Well, well it looks ahead. like they actually predict the revenue to slightly flatten out over the next few years. So 2022 is 14 million, then 15, then 16, then 17. Those are suspiciously round numbers. Uh, and then they plan to continue <laughs> operating at the 20 to 25, 25-ish percent EBITDA margins. I have to hand it though, guys, to this broker. I'm seeing here something that I've never seen before. This broker is forecasting a slower growth rate post-transaction than pre-transaction. This business has gone from eight to 12 to 14. And then they want to sell it to you and think it will go to 15, 16, 17, which is on one hand, I'm like, wow, like how honest. On the other hand, it makes me go, whoa, that's the optimistic case. What's really going to happen? I think what this is, is it obfuscates the fact that three years ago, this business was making almost no money. So like if they continued with the typical trend of chart crimes where revenue just continues to like double every two years, you would look back and be like, wow, in 2019, the business did six million in revenue. Like it's going to accentuate the fact that the business was very, very small not that long ago. And they will probably want you to pay five times 3.5 million today. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if this is a COVID bump business. People are at home and redoing their floors. And I wonder if that's why they've predicted it to slow down. Yeah. Or a situation where, you know, during COVID with stuff like this, um, you were basically like, oh, you actually have flooring to sell me? Like, let's go. I'll pay you whatever you want. And that caused the margin margin bump and the revenue bump. They say strong client and vendor relationships. The company has long-term relationships with its vendor base and maintains strong relationships with multiple vendors for its wood products, reducing the risk of losing a single supplier. The company also maintains strong relationships with its customers. Their their commitment to quality of service and products has earned the company a rate of repeat business of 90%, um, which leads me to believe they are most likely selling mostly to flooring contractors and maybe to general contractors um, who... Yeah. So that's good because how often like are you and me buying flooring (laughs) mills? It's pretty, pretty rare. Um, So they have a diversified customer base aside from the company's top customer that accounted for 17% of sales in 2021. No other single customer is responsible for more than 8% of sales. And do they talk about the residential versus commercial split here? No, they just talk about in the the pie chart just as like hardwood, vinyl, trim, accessories. 
yeah. So it's it could be a mix of stuff that people are doing in terms of commercial versus residential here. But it looks like they're selling to the actual contractors or our builders, um, which is a good thing. I wouldn't want to be in this business without selling to consumers. I, I was just going to say, I think it depends. This is a this is again why I have an issue with the margins. But if you're selling to contractors and you know like flooring installers, they are much more price sensitive because they are buying from you all the time, and so you're typically having to compete to win their business. And any margin that they can pick up from you or you know your competitor is money that they can hopefully net at the end of the day from the customer. If you're really good at customer acquisition for this type of thing, you can command a higher, you know, a higher margin selling, you know, B to C. It's just what are you good at? What is the business ultimately good at? Yeah. The other thing that I didn't see in these financials that kind of surprised me is margin compression due to freight. So I've got uh, know a couple of people in the flooring business, and they got absolutely annihilated during COVID because they were bringing in from China, you know solid containers of wood, right? Um, and so not only did the tariffs get them uh, when the, when Trump put those in, but then when the shipping container prices exploded, it destroyed their margin because they were already spending like 25% of revenue on freight. And that went up to 75% of revenue when freight prices tripled. And what's interesting to me is I don't, it doesn't add up to me that margin expansion in a freight dependent, import dependent wholesaler I just don't get that. Yeah. So something happened there. I, I think that'd be something we'd all agree we should look into. What What is causing them to actually think the business is not going to continue to grow quickly? And they know something. And I would be very curious. And maybe our friends in the audience that know something about you know this type of specific market um, would have some insight into it. I'm sure we'll get DMs about it. But um, I think that's really the story. As you're, you guys are saying, the story just doesn't make sense. The margins are too high. And then we've got this broker doing just the weirdest thing of like slowing the growth down. And it's like, what what's going on here? Like those two things give either, me pause. Either they're the most honest broker in the world or the truth is that revenue is about to roll over. This is uh, this is generational equity too. You can tell because their teasers all look the exact same. It's just that the folks who sent it to us cut off the top and the bottom. Um, but, you know, it's... It's not going to be well uh, well advised, I would say, from the from the sell side. Um, I also think it's hilarious that they say um, the company's management is structured optimally with highly qualified and reliable personnel, but they have seven employees. So, like, ha- you know how how deep is the management bench when like there have to be people who are not in management? There have to be like people who are just working, not in management, out of those seven. It can run well without ownership. So the thing I love about generational equity is whoever they have at headquarters, proofreading and writing these these teasers, they're uniform, they're well-written, they explain the business concisely. Yeah, there's questions, but at least like it's not like the last one <laughs> we looked at in the last episode we recorded. And, uh, you know, or it's like misspellings and it was very frustrating. Um, so I like that aspect about it. But like, it feels like every time generational equity gets mentioned, people are just like so frustrated with them as a brokerage. It is interesting. Generational equity, they have this omni-channel kind of approach. I literally walked into my office today and I had two uh, teasers in the mail from them. They send physical teasers 
when you get on there, not, not for every single deal. I don't even know how they pick the ones they send me. I, I didn't open them, but, um, that they, they blast out once a month, all their listings. And it's definitely the, you know, we have the largest pool of potential buyers out there and that's how they land a lot of, a lot of listings. And the crazy thing is there's a little bit of something to be said for that. Um, you know, there's, there's a broker in the e-commerce space called quiet light and they have a giant list. And when you're trying to sell a small business, you need as many people looking at it as possible. And that sounds stupid, but there's value there. Well, and it's the case in point for micro acquire, right? Like there's so many eyeballs there. You just show up you put in your credit card and you see all the deals. Like I like it. <laughs> it's, it it's great. Um, so anyway, back to this deal. Going back to this deal at a high level, I just have a visceral response to distributors and wholesalers. I think it is such a hard business. You sit in this place in the value chain where, like Bill mentioned, you have all kinds of costs that you can't control. They say they manage their supplier risk, but at the end of the day, like if there's a crisis in wood products, your supplier's not immune to that. And yeah, you could switch to another, but that guy's not immune to it either. And then you're riding on the on the revenue side, you're riding macroeconomic trends of is my thing hot right now or not? Are people replacing flooring in their homes in a boom or a bust? And you're just squeezed in the middle. Um, I, I just think that as you get in and really press on these margins, they are not. I don't. I don't think they're going to be. I don't think this cash flow is as real as it seems at face value, or or at least maybe not going in the future, right? I mean, like we are living in a time of technology advancement, and technology disintermediates middlemen generally. So unless you have some sort of like protected territory, it feels more like a dealer rather than a wholesaler. Uh, or you, you know, you've got some protection from wherever the flooring is coming from, or the parent of some kind. I feel like you're just gonna have, you're signing up for ten years of squeeze margins to nothing. I bet you they went through twenty four months of oh you oh we can charge whatever we want for this flooring because the supply chain issues were so bad for everybody else. And I bet you that's not going to continue because I mean mills so the the standard kind of benchmark for distributorships is like this commodity distributorships. You're running at eight to 10% EBITDA. Yeah. Or lower. I mean, honestly, or lower, it depends on, it depends on, you know, is it, who, who is your end customer, right? Is it contractors, homeowners? What's the kind of distribution model of your distributorship or wholesalership? But yeah, it, it is rare that they're above 10 and all those folks want to find some way to differentiate. There, there's one here in town that I know they tried to differentiate and create a custom metal fab shop to augment what they were doing of just stock, you know, just distribution. And they were like, it's too hard. And we, we incurred all this cost. We hired all these people and it wasn't a profit center like we thought it was going to be. And it's like, yeah, because that's not what you're cut out. That's not who your business is. You're not a custom welding and fabrication shop. You're a guy who gets stuff in, you hold it on the shelf and you turn around and deliver it just in time to the end customer. Just be content with who you yeah. are. You know, have you guys ever looked at like um, the high end distributors or not the high end, the, the scale distributors for like electrical and plumbing stuff like L8 electrical and CES and stuff like that. Fascinating businesses when they get to a size much bigger than where these guys are. I mean, these guys are at eight, 10 million. But when you're moving a billion dollars worth of plumbing and electrical a year, like it gives you so many economies of scale, which these guys have no economies of scale. <laughs> they got nothing. <laughs> Diseconomies of scale. Um, 
you know, but when you get to those giant like distributorships, and I forgot what the name of the one is. There's one out of Minneapolis that does um, that does electrical, I think, or plumbing, and like the family's like multi billionaires because they can get twenty percent better prices than everybody else, and they get put in the front of the line. Uh, it's really fascinating. Unfortunately, this is not one of those situations. Well, and there's been there's been a lot of consolidation there. Even the ones that are the ones that I know here that are kind of in the five to ten million dollar EBITDA range, whether it's plumbing, electrical, or mechanical, those MEP trades. They, you know, they do, they, they have, you know, some pricing power that weeds out the mom and pops. And if you're a plumber, you don't go buy stuff from Lowe's if you can help it, unless you just have to go do it last minute. You buy everything at the supply house because their pricing's better, their selection's better, and, you know, you can buy on terms instead of at Lowe's. But those guys get big and they have gotten gobbled up in consolidation and for good reason. They're, they're really good staying power type businesses. Um, with, with not a lot of customer concentration typically. So is there a price or a set of terms at which you would do a transaction for this business or is this just a business where you're like, eh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to play an easier game than this one. People always tell me that this is like a ridiculously stingy structure, but it's always the one I reach for when there's a lot of future uncertainty in a business, uh, and a lot of chance that the business goes to zero. Uh, and it's basically pure risk sharing. It's like, you give me the business, you know, I'll pay you, you know, a, a token amount, $50,000, $100,000, something up front to show that I'm real. And you give me the keys. And then we split the EBITDA after debt service for however long or, or until you receive a maximum of whatever. It's basically 100% seller financing. Uh, but, it's, but it's not actual seller debt because you got to scale the payments down if the business gets cut in half. Too. So it's basically a seller, you got to share all the risk with me. Like the only risk I'm taking is whatever the token upfront is, the 50 to 100 grand to show you I'm real. And then if the business works, works for you, works for me, uh, and life is good. But I, sellers seem to hate this whenever I propose it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yes, it's heads, heads they lose, tails you win. <laughs> so, but you're doing all the work, you know, and I, I talked to, uh, in DMs on Twitter, by the way, please don't DM me on Twitter because everybody DMs me on Twitter and I can't answer all of them. But uh, but there was a guy who's a you know it's a shower name anonymous, but he showed me a deal where he was structuring it just like that, and and it was a, a tiny deal for him compared to the other ones he's done. And I was like, dude, like this is just a distraction because you have deal fever. Like you should not be doing this at all. Like no matter they should pay you to take this business because it's that bad. And, uh, and he messaged me like four months later. He's like, Gridley, you know, thank you. Cause I would have been spent all my time on that. And these two great deals came in otherwise. And I paid up for quality companies. So, I mean, there's, I think there's that argument where it's like, you know, it comes back to what we talked about last week, Bill, like you'd have to pay me to take this business. <laughs> so, yeah, or unless I, I was so deep in this business already and this was an add on, I could get some scale or something like that. I go back to the fact that three years ago, this business was hardly making any money. They have seven employees and they think it's worth 15 million bucks. I guarantee it. It's just, it's just not, it's just not sellable at its current inflection point. Maybe if it had three years worth of this level of profitability and earnings and, you know, they had proved that it can work at, at this level of scale, but I just don't think so. So other than that, we think it's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Well, on to the next one. So I'll tell my buddy who's looking at this that we hated it. And he can listen to the episode. Free consulting. You send If you've got deals you're looking at, send them to us and we'll take a look at them. You get free consulting. Uh, but, you know, it's free. So you get what you pay for sometimes. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Cool. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week and uh, on to the next one.